0: Well, brothers and sisters, our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, and then our sermon passage uh, takes up where we left off last week in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 16 to 31, and your bulletins, uh, verse 30 is so small, I didn't even see verse 31, it was just right there tucked in at the end, and uh, so I typed in 16 to 30 in your bulletins, is actually chapter thirty of first Samuel sixteen to thirty one. But first we will we will read from John chapter six verses thirty six to forty. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. It's your duty, and it's a glorious duty, to give your full attention to God's word now as it is read. John six thirty six to forty For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel 30, verses 16 to 31. And when He had taken Him down, behold... They were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Mesor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in in this matter? For as this share is... As his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for these in, those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Canaanites, in Hormah, in bor in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Oh, most gracious God, we're thankful that you have given to us your revelation of who you are, of what you have done for us, of your will for us. We're grateful, Lord, that you have provided for us all that we need to know to live as Christians in this life. And so we're grateful, Lord, that your word is sufficient. We pray that you would teach us from your word today, that you would instruct us, but that you would also convict us and encourage us. We pray that we might be strengthened And that through the preaching of your word, it would be used as a means of preservation for us. So please bless us, Lord, and cause us to worship you and glorify you as your word is now preached. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And when we consider the first half of chapter 30 of 1 Samuel last week, we saw how God graciously provided for David and for his men. Just as he had provided for them a means of escape from fighting with the Philistines against Israel, so he provided for David all that he needed so that David could be strengthened in the Lord. Upon arriving at Ziklag, David and his men were devastated to see their town burned to the ground and their wives and their children taken. And David was even more distressed because his men began blaming David and started talking about stoning him. But we read there right after that that verse about the men talking of stoning David that David strengthened himself in the Lord. We know that David was one of these people. We see it in the Psalms. We see it uh, earlier in uh, 1 Samuel that David reminds himself of the goodness of the Lord. He recalls, he brings back to his attention the things that the Lord has done for him. And no doubt David did that here at this point. But David also asked God to give him divine direction through the means of the ephod. He sought out God's word. David looked to God's word for strength. Now you remember that at the end of last week's passage, David and his men found an Egyptian man who had been left for dead by the Amalekites. David understood that this was a stroke of divine providence. He understood that God had left this man so that they wouldn't have to search all over the wilderness for the Amalekites. This man was able to take them directly to the Amalekites. And so David asked him, and the man agreed, and he said, only on the condition that you won't kill me and you won't give me back to my former master's. And so he took David and his men, these 400 men, to the camp of the Amalekites, and that's where we are this morning. Now, the main part of our narrative this morning, you'll notice, it doesn't deal with the battle against the Amalekites. Only one verse actually describes the battle, verse 17. The rest of the chapter deals with the recovery of the families and the distribution of the spoils. What war movies would have spent the majority of time on? Probably what you and I might have preferred. What were the details of the battle? How did this small band of 400 men, how were they able to defeat such a vast army of Amalekites? What movies would have spent their time on? What we might have preferred to spend uh, time on? The biblical author chose to spend only a few moments glossing over. Almost as if it were nothing that David and his men defeated a vast army. And that, I think, is because it literally was nothing for God to give the Amalekites into David's hands. It took no exertion on God's part. And David knew that it was God who gave them victory in battle. And David understood that it was God who preserved their lives. And so this is what I would ask you to consider as we work our way through the passage this morning. God so loves his people... That none of those he gave to his son will ever be lost, but infallibly will be preserved for eternity. God so loves his people that none of those he gave to his son will ever be lost, but infallibly will be preserved for eternity. The sermon today just has two points. The first, eat, drink, and be merry. And the second, full recovery. Again, the first point of the sermon is eat, drink, and be merry. And the second, full recovery. So let's look at the first point of the sermon, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 16 says that when the Egyptian man took them down, that is, David and his men down, the Amalekites, quote, were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And so you get this picture, and it's hard to imagine exactly what it looks like in the southern part of Judah in that day, but you get this picture of a vast encampment. No specific numbers are given, but the author of 1 Samuel wants us to know that this is a huge band of men, this Amalekite army. The Amalekites' raids had been a great success, and now they were going to enjoy what they had earned from their chief profession, And indeed, it is the chief profession for many throughout history. There are different groups of people throughout history who could have checked bandit as their occupation when they were filling out a form. For example, one scholar has noted that the Scots-Irish propensity for violence and feuding was rooted in sheep herding. It was a vocation in which the principal source of wealth was easily stolen and thus a reputation for violent reprisal and sustained enmity was necessary. Don't mess with the Scots-Irish. That was the reputation they wanted to, to engender. That's the reputation of the Amalekites. They go around raiding, stealing. That's how they gained their wealth. Now, the Amalekites in our passage were reveling in their newly acquired wealth. They were drunk on success and probably wine. And they were dancing and cavorting into the wee hours of the night. Now earlier I said that it was as if it were nothing for David and his men to strike down the Amalekites. But in reality, they were engaged in battle, it seems, for almost 24 hours. Verse 17 says that David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. So for a a, a long period of time, they were engaged in battle. The author, in an economy of words, is conveying the ease with which God wiped out these Amalekites. But for David and his men, it was an all-out battle for nearly a day, 24 hours. No doubt the fighting was made easier by the Israelites' use of the element of surprise. They caught the Amalekites with their pants down, as it were. And so the battle itself might have seemed like shooting fish in a barrel, to speak anachronistically. Verse 17 contains an interesting and apparent contradiction. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Now, the way that this statement is phrased, it conveys that these 400 men, the the Amalekites who escaped, though equal in number to David and his men, were statistically insignificant when compared to the number of Amalekites struck down. And so there's not actually a contradiction It's so few in comparison to the rest of the Amalekites who were killed that it almost goes without mention. But it also demonstrates the author's desire to be truthful in what he was writing. If he wasn't telling the truth, it would have been all too easy to leave it out. If he wasn't interested in the truth, he would have left that detail out. Because it was so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Well, that brings us to the second point of the sermon, full recovery. Verse 18 sets the tone for everything else that follows in this chapter. We read there, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Now, in one sense, this is a greater victory than striking down the vast majority of the Amalekites. What they really wanted, what they most desperately wanted in this particular uh, uh, skirmish was to get their wives and their children. They got all of the spoils that the Amalekites had taken to boot. That was icing on the cake, but they got their families back. And verse 19 elaborates and states it even more clearly. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. They got it all back. And then some verse 20 goes on to add that he captured all of the flocks and the herds. And remember that not only that the, Amal- the Amalekites attacked not only Ziklag but also various cities within Judah. And so their haul was quite massive. And the recovery of the stolen goods, the stolen people, it was complete. The people drove the livestock before David on the way back, back north to the brook Messor. They said all of this belongs to David. It's David's spoil as they were going. But as soon as they arrived back at the brook and they rejoined the 200 men who were too exhausted to continue any further south, new troubles began. The 200 men who stayed in the rear with the gear were most likely elated at the sight of David and his men's return, but more at the sight of their wives, their children, their possessions. You'd think that if the narrator were to cast aspersions at anyone in this narrative, it would be on the men who stayed back. But that's not what the narrator does. Now, those who were in the infantry when I was in the military, we always cast aspersions on the ones we called pokes. Personnel other than grunts. If you weren't a grunt, well, it doesn't rhyme, but you weren't much. These were anyone who weren't involved in combat arms. And so if the descriptors wicked and worthless were to be used, you'd think they would be used about those who were too weak and too exhausted to go any further. These pitiful, weak men. Worthless. They couldn't even be bothered to fight with us. But notice who these descriptions are used of. Verse 22 says, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any, any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. How gracious, how generous on the parts of these wicked and worthless men. Now notice that it wasn't all of the 400 who, who went with David. It was a subset from among them who voiced these sentiments. And yet the the, the gist of what they were saying was that the men who stayed behind didn't deserve any of the spoils. Hadn't done anything to earn it. They viewed the 200 men as less worthy than the rest of them to reap the rewards of their labors. And so what you see is now this very tight and unified group of 600 men who had been with David now for years, fighting with him. Uh, eluding Saul, fighting against Saul, doing everything that they could. There's disunity that is creeping in to this tight group. This subset of the 400 no longer saw these other men. The 200 as a part of the whole. And they wanted them to be sent away. They wanted to, in a sense, excommunicate them once they were reunited with their families. And this subset of the 400 they were taking credit for the victory over the Amalekites in a way that the author of 1 Samuel was unwilling to do. If if one of these men, these wicked and worthless men as the author puts it, if one of these men had written this passage, he would have filled it with stories of their great feats in the battle. They would have used the opportunity to aggrandize themselves. These men had forgotten who had actually won the battle who'd won the battle for them. But David had not. He responded to the men in verse 23, You shall not do so, brothers, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. David here is reunifying. He calls them my brothers. You won't do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. These men didn't realize, or perhaps they had forgotten, that it was impossible, humanly speaking, for their small band of 400 men to go against a vast army such as the Amalekites and defeat them. David and these 400 men had not defeated the Amalekites. God had. He is the one who preserved them. And he is the one who gave back to them their wives and their children and all of the possessions that they had recovered. None of it belonged to them. It all belonged to the Lord. And what's more, David understood that it was important for soldiers to stay in the rear with the gear. It might be a lesson that he learned from Ziklag, which doesn't appear to have had much of a guard left behind when the rest of the men went north, presumably to fight with Akish against the Israelites. Now, in the army and the Marine Corps, at least, there are, other, uh, of course, other service, services that have bands, but in the Army and the Marine Corps, even the members of the field bands have combat responsibility in theaters of war. And so if you're a member of the 2nd Marine Division, for instance, and that division is deployed to Afghanistan, one of your responsibilities in that combat theater is to provide security for the rear. You're the rear guard. You're part of the group that stays behind. Only the president's own and the commandant's own in the Marine Corps, these bands are mission exclusive to music, meaning that the members don't even have to go through boot camp, much less serve in a war zone. Anybody else, whether they're infantry or not, can find themselves, whether they've been in the rear or not, they can find themselves on the front line of battle. Sometimes the rear becomes the front. And recognizing this, David told his men in verse 24, Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And David ordered that this would become a statute and a rule in Israel. And whenever the book of 1 Samuel was written, it had stayed that way down to that day. And really, that principle holds true even in our military to this day. Now, this is somewhat like Jesus' parable of the laborers in the, vi- the vineyards. Not identical, but it's reminiscent. It, it calls it to mind, at least for me. Some were hired early in the morning. Others were hired at various points throughout the day. But they all were paid at the end of the day the same wages, even the ones who were hired at the 11th hour. And you remember in the, this parable that Jesus told, the ones who were hired at the beginning, they grumbled when the payments were given out because they'd made no more for working 12 hours than the ones who had worked only one. And Jesus used that parable to teach us that God blesses all of his children richly with every spiritual blessing, whether they were called to him early or late. Whether you were a first century Christian who walked with Jesus or someone who came to Christ in the 21st century, whether you came early in your life or you came on your deathbed, the benefits, the blessings are the same. Because they're not merited. We don't get what we deserve. We're not paid according to our labors, but according to the labors of Jesus Christ. He is the one who protects and preserves us. He is the one who causes us to grow. But one of the spiritual blessings that, that God does give to us is preservation. And oftentimes it's referred to as the perseverance of the saints. But in essence, it means that those whom God calls, He will cause to persevere. persevere. He will preserve them. And this is what Jesus meant when He said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives to me I will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out even the ones who are so weak and exhausted that they don't feel like they can carry on any longer and are ready to give up if they belong to him. Those Christians who are less than successful, who in comparison to the the great ones, their lives are a total mess and a wreck. Even they are blessed. Blessed. God preserves them. He does not cast them out. He blesses them just like He blesses the ones who seem so strong. The last six verses of the chapter further illustrate the fact that all of the spoils that David and his men brought back from the Amalekites belong not to his men, but to the Lord. Beginning in verse 26, David begins to send portions of the treasure back to the towns in Judah where David and his men had roamed and were supported. Very likely, he's also sending spoils back to the towns that the Amalekites had raided. He's getting things back, possessions back, livestock back. This was generous, but it was also, I think we could say without too much cynicism, perhaps not. It was a good PR move. It was smart. It was, it was good for David to do this. He was restoring or perhaps building up relations. At this point, though David does not know it, he will be king of Judah in just a matter of days. He's already building up those good relations with the people who had hosted him for years. Now, brothers and sisters, in one sense, we are all worthless and wicked people. We are undeserving of the most meager of God's goodnesses to us. We are very much like the fellows in David's militia who didn't want to share anything with those who didn't go down into battle with them even though they enabled the men's loads to be lightened by staying behind with the baggage. Sometimes, perhaps more often than sometimes, we're like the ones who stayed behind. We've become so run down, so tired and weary, we don't know how we can keep going. And we need to rest by the quiet, still waters of the brook for a time. In both cases, with both sets of men, God was gracious. He blessed the wicked and worthless men with a portion of the spoils of war. He blessed the weak and weary with the same, but also with the rest that they needed. Serving is tiring. Sometimes you need a break from it. You've got to step back. Now, ideally, ideally we would be like the group of men that wasn't explicitly discussed in our passage, who didn't need to stay behind, but also didn't grumble about those who did. They seemingly quietly went about their service, simply doing what was expected of them, doing their duty. But even when, as is the case most of the time, we aren't like the obedient men in David's fighting force, Jesus Christ is. He is. He is the one to whom these men, along with David, pointed. He is the faithful one. He obediently carried out his duty, perfectly obeying his father's every command without complaint. And he did it to save sinners like you and me. We who are wicked and worthless, we who are weak and weary. He did it to save us. And so the good news is that no matter which group of people, you are more like at the present time. And that may may vary. Some days you may feel like the weak and worthless, or the the wicked and worthless. Some days you may feel like the weak and weary. Occasionally, just occasionally, you might feel like uh, those who are uh, doing what they ought to do, but you probably won't even be aware of it when you are. But when you do feel weak and weary or wicked and worthless... You can trust that Jesus Christ, that He was worthy. And if you belong to Him, He will faithfully preserve you, even when you aren't so faithful to Him. That, brothers and sisters, is the good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You, because You are faithful to us. You've promised that you would preserve us, and you do. Lord, we admit that there are times where we feel so tenuous in our faith, like we are hanging by the barest of threads. There are other times, dear Lord, where we make poor and sinful decisions. So rarely it is the case, it seems, dear Lord, where we are simply being obedient to your commands doing what we ought to do. But we're thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for His perfect obedience. We're thankful for His perfect death on the cross. We're thankful for the imputation of His righteousness into our account. We're thankful, dear Lord, that You credit us with His perfect obedience. And we pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit, By the means of grace that you would cause us to be obedient. To be like Christ. To walk in his footsteps. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.